Welcome to another episode of the Amford Church Sermon Podcast. We're thrilled that you're taking the time to listen to what we have to say about God, the world, and you. These sermons are recorded live during our weekly Sunday morning services. To find out more about us or to plan a visit to join us, check out our website, amfordchurch.com. Again, thanks for listening and enjoy. We've managed to make it through one chapter, and I would guess for the majority of us, it's all been quite explainable. It's all been quite as we would expect. John read a couple of verses to us uh, before we sang that last song, and um, well, really, they set the scene for everything that we've seen and experienced, haven't they? And Mark opens with his words, I've got good news for you. And I don't know whether you, like me, at the start of Mark's Gospel, with 16 chapters left to read, you think to yourself, well, good, I'm glad it's good news, Mark, because that sounds like quite a commitment. I don't want to read something that is boring or irrelevant. So that's how he opens. And then Jesus comes and he proclaims this message, the kingdom of God is near. And immediately after that, he goes and he calls two pairs of brothers. And who are they? Well, they're hardworking men. They're small to medium-sized business owners. Here's Jesus, the king, announcing a kingdom. It's good news. And who is invited? Well, it's someone like um, a hard-working, honest, makes his living out of his hands kind of individual. That's, that sounds good, doesn't it? That if Jesus is bringing a new kingdom, it isn't for those who are kind of like away in their thoughts. It isn't for people who are taking advantage of others. It isn't for the religious leaders or the political leaders, right? It's just normal, everyday, honest, hard-working folk, providing for themselves, their families, their communities. That's good. A little bit later in the chapter, we see that Jesus comes and he finds people who are downtrodden, who are oppressed, who are suffering, be that through sickness or some sort of demonic opposition. And Jesus offers them healing and freedom. And we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, do you know what? This is good news. A kingdom coming that's for honest, hardworking people like me and you, and those people who are, who, are, who are marginalized or are suffering in the normal way of things, they're being restored. They're being made right. They're being looked after. It's a nice picture, isn't it, of a new world that Jesus is bringing about, where just Ordinary folk, I keep saying it, ordinary folk are identified, acknowledged. And those people who are on the lowest kind of social stratas, lowest rung of the ladder, those people who, through whatever circumstances, not of their own doing, are suffering, well, they're being helped. Whatever pain they are feeling or experiencing is being alleviated. So, so far, so good. Yeah, Mark, this does sound like good news. Yes, Jesus, you are the coming king. Your kingdom, it sounds wonderful. What is not to like about that? So far, what is there not to love? And if you noticed, as you've gone through Mark chapter 1, as we've gone through it together, and as you've gone through it in your own personal reading, Jesus has been fully accepted up until this point. People have seen, heard, experienced it, and everyone is just lapping it up. Everything is exactly as it should be. And so this morning, we're turning into chapter 2. And let me tell you, Jesus is about to up the ante. 
if everything so far sounds wonderful um, and grand, you wait and, until you see some of the surprises that Jesus has in store for us. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, let's read them together. This is how the second chapter opens. A few days later, when Jesus again had entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, uh, could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the man was lying on. So again, we're kind of faced with a so far, so good. Everything is as is expected. Jesus has been healing people of various sicknesses, of various ailments. He's come, the crowd has gathered round. He's describing to them what the kingdom of God is like. And people bring him someone who, again, is suffering, someone who is sick, someone who Jesus can uh, touch or pray for or bless or whatever it is to be made well. It's business as usual. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you would be forgiven this morning or at any point reading through it of reading verse 5 and just like your jaw dropping. What? Where on earth has that come from? Why on earth is Jesus looking at this guy and announcing forgiveness for his sins? I mean, there's so many questions, so many things that we, we can be feeling when we get to verse 5. Up until verse 5, verse 4 included, we're thinking, okay, everything is as it should be. Sick people coming to Jesus, looking for uh, direction in their lives, looking for healing in their lives. But when Jesus sees a man who is paralyzed and lowered through the roof on a mat, he turns to him and he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, aside from the fact that this seems to be like a new element introduced, so far it's been healing and releasing people from things. There's been a little bit of mention of repentance. There was John's baptism for the remission of sins. That was going on. But so far, it's really just been about good news of setting people free. Apart from the fact that here Jesus introduces something new, just think about how that makes you feel when Jesus says to someone who has such a clear, obvious affliction, your sons are forgiven. Do you not feel that it's a bit insensitive to say that to someone when they've come to you presumably for another reason? Do you not think fairly, that's a bit presumptuous, Jesus, to suggest that this guy is a sinner that needs forgiving? I was trying to think about this this week. He's got four mates who were willing to go to such lengths to bring him to Jesus. I think he was probably quite a decent guy. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. How presumptuous that this guy's ever done anything wrong. Don't you think it's judgmental that Jesus says that? Do you feel at all as if he's being unkind to the man? Seeing his very obvious need and then looking elsewhere? Jesus ups the ante. 
There's a shock. There's a surprise. It's not business as usual anymore. And you know what? Other people feel that way. We feel like that when we read it. Why have you gone there? Why are you talking about sins all of a sudden? But there were other people in the story, and they agreed 100%. It's not very often that we say this, but enter the Pharisees, and they're feeling the same thing as we are. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there, and they were thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? They don't understand it. They've been happy with everything that's happened up until this point, but all of a sudden, Jesus changes the the topic, changes the direction, changes the focus, and they say, why is this fellow talking like that? It's interesting that their question, which they're about to articulate really, is quite, quite different to the way that we respond to it, but they have that same disbelief, that same shock, that same surprise. But here's what they say. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So if we come to him, we've got a big, what? Why are you talking about sins to a guy who's obviously come to you for healing of his paralysis? They've got a big, what? In exactly the same tone of voice. But actually, their question is far, far better, I think. Their question is far, far better. They've said, right, we we like the coming of the kingdom. That makes sense. That's great news because we don't like the Romans who are oppressing us. We even like your idea that this man is a sinner because he doesn't do the same sorts of things as we do. But we certainly do not like this idea that you, you, Jesus, can offer forgiveness for sins. That doesn't make sense. You must be blaspheming, they say, because only God can forgive sins. Try and get into their kind of mindset, kind of get into their um, kind of skin and their shoes at this moment. Imagine you are invited to a wedding and you've got the bride and the groom there at the front and someone who is scruffy, someone who has come in late, wanders to the front, mutters a few words to the bride and the groom, listens for their responses and then announces to the entire gathered congregation, I now pronounce you two husband and wife. What do you say then? What do you think then? What do you feel then? You think, what? You? You can't say that. Only a vicar can say that, and and you're clearly not a vicar. So how have you got any right to come into this situation and make such an announcement? Do you get where I'm going with that? Someone who really does not have the authority, does not have the position, certainly doesn't have the power to say the things that they're saying. Okay, I'll let you in on a secret. In my illustration, it's just a scruffily dressed vicar, you know, and he kind of pulls out his credentials and he shows you, well, I am a vicar. And all of a sudden, everything makes sense. But that is exactly what's happening here with these teachers of the law. When they hear Jesus looking at this man and saying to him, son, your sins are forgiven, they say, You are not the one who can say that. You do not have that power. You do not have that authority. Because when Jesus comes and he makes such a statement, he kind of presents us with a a fork in the road, doesn't he? When Jesus comes and says, I'm the one who can forgive your sins, just like a vicar might come in and say, I'm the one that can say you are now married, you are husband and wife, presents us, with a fork in the road. 
We go one way with a fork in the road, and we, along with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, will say, Jesus, you are a blasphemer. That that you have said alone, God can say, and you are not him, so you must be a blasphemer. Or the fork in the road can be followed where we look and we listen and we judge and we say, Jesus, you have said this man's sins are forgiven and only God can say that. Therefore, you must be God himself. Come to walk and dwell amongst us. Can you see that when Jesus makes this statement, he presents us with a fork in the road and we've got to choose. Do we believe what he says and trust him? And look to him and understand him to be God-made flesh? Or do we, like the Pharisees, say, no, 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 no. That's a God thing to say, and you are not God. You are a blasphemer. My question for you this morning is this. Who do you think Jesus is? Which fork in the road are you looking to take? Now, let me just say, this isn't necessarily the last time that you get to answer that question. Here, the teachers of the law are presented with Jesus. They're presented with this statement. And they come to the conclusion, well, he must be a blasphemer. As we work through Mark's gospel, we'll see time and time again, they've got an opportunity to change their mind, to see the truth, to reassess the situation. And the same, I hope, will be true for us as we work our way through Mark's gospel. So this needn't be your final answer. But right now, this morning, which way do you want to go? Jesus is... Well, we, we wouldn't really like the word blasphemer. We wouldn't really be bothered about the blasphemy of it all. We just want to think Jesus is a liar. Is he lying when he turns to this man and he says, your sins are forgiven? Or is he telling the truth? Is he God made flesh walking among us? Keep reading the story. Verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sons are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man, he's speaking about himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man on his mat, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. Verse 12, he took up, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never, ever, in our whole lives, seen anything like this. What's Jesus doing there? Jesus is saying to those who have decided that this is the direction to go, that the blasphemy, lying direction, is is the fork in the road that you have taken. If you need proof, I'm happy to give it to you. If you need more than my words, I'm happy to demonstrate the power that I have. Now, just follow along with his thinking. He turns to them and he, and he basically admits, doesn't he, that it's easy for him to say something along the lines of your sins are forgiven. But for that to be a reality, well, now that is extremely difficult because only God can make that a reality. And so he says, well, let me give you something which is, in one sense, equally easy to say, get up, but equally hard to truly achieve for a man who is paralyzed to walk. Jesus is saying, well, I can't, I can't really evidence to you the fact that his sins are forgiven right now, can I? 
That's just something you're going to have to take my word on. But think about something which physically in front of us right now will be just as hard. Get up, take a mat, go home. And the man does. The man does. So he says to us, who would say, well, Jesus, you're a liar. You are not God. You cannot forgive sins. He says, well, if that's the case, how can I say to this man, pick up your mat and walk, and then he does it? Jesus came to forgive. Everyone can now see that. Everyone is skipping and jumping and they're saying what John the Baptist was speaking about, the fact that we could go into the water and we could have our sins washed away. That is true. It's fantastic news. But let me just say, there's another shock just around the corner. Let's keep on reading verses 13 to 16. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the Pharisees, uh, the teachers of the law who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I'm sure you've heard something of that story before, just like you've heard something of the story of the paralyzed man. Here's Levi. Uh, he's a tax collector. And that means many things, doesn't it? It means that he is reviled by his own people. It means probably that he's reviled by the Romans who are governing the land. It means that he's got no friends, that his family don't particularly want to have anything to do with him. It means that the only people he can associate with are tax collectors like him who are equally reviled. It means that he, he can't bear to look in the mirror. He made a choice, a decision in his life, that he was going to take a job which meant serving the Roman oppressors and taking advantage of his own people. Serving the Roman oppressors and taking advantage of his people. His little booth was set up at the side of the water so that when goods were brought in, he could charge some tax, import, export tax, things like that. Custom pretty much was that whoever was in charge of doing that would extort an extra bit of money. People hated him because he robbed. People hated him because he was helping the Roman oppressors. You can't imagine that they thought much about this dog who was willing to betray his own people for a bit of cash. Levi is someone who is reviled, thought little of by everyone, including himself. Jesus comes to him. And Jesus offers him what? Jesus offers him a new life. Levi, one who is not scared of making big decisions, becoming a tax collector was a big decision. When he hears that offer from Jesus, follow me, he jumps at it. He jumps at it and he leaves everything behind. Now everything for him isn't family, it isn't friends, it isn't social standing, but it is power, it is authority, it is cash. You can imagine the scene, can't you? This little hut, this booth that he's got, where he's 
robbing people of money, for him to get up and to leave and to follow Jesus is literally to leave that behind, isn't it? Jesus offers him a new life and he jumps at it. And this is what we read next. That in his house, there's something of a party. Jesus, Levi, Jesus' disciples. And so it would seem the only sort of people who Levi had in his phone contact list, in his Rolodex or whatever they call it, they are the tax collectors. Now, I don't know who dreamed up this party. Some people will tell you that it was Levi himself. He thought, Jesus has offered me new life, and so I want to get Jesus and these people that I know together so that he can offer them the exact same thing. Perhaps that's the case. Perhaps the first thing that Jesus says to Levi after follow me is, go fetch your mates, bring them to your house. I'm going to spend time with them too. Perhaps it was Jesus' idea. I don't think it really matters whose idea it was. I think what we see next is what is so beautiful and so important about this story. Is that that there is Jesus having dinner and that there are many tax collectors and sinners eating with him. Jesus is having dinner and that there are many sinners and tax collectors eating with him. The second shock, I guess, is this. That Jesus is willing to associate with people who none of us would want to associate with. If you remember when we were looking through uh, chapter one, when we studied it in rooted groups, when we chatted about it in ones and twos as we preached it from the, the stage here, we spoke about Jesus coming and being baptized by John as a way of Jesus identifying with humanity. Remember chapter one, John the Baptist is out in the, uh, by the Jordan and he's inviting people to come and to confess their sins, to go into the water and to come out symbolically clean before God. And Jesus comes along and he's baptized as well. And, and people ask the question, well, why does he do that? Because I thought Jesus was perfect. So it seems like a bit of a redundant step in his life. And the easy answer is he comes and he identifies with us in our filth. That that is a picture for us in his baptism, that he's not afraid even to get into this dirty water with us and to say, yes, I am one with you. I, I am part of you and your humanity. That's one picture we get. Here's another picture we get of Jesus' willingness to come and to associate, to be with, to rub shoulders with, to have food with tax collectors and sinners. Like we read that, and I'm not sure we get how shocking that is. There's a sense in which the real heroes in both of these stories are the Pharisees, who witness what is going on and say, what on earth? That shouldn't be the case. They've done it with Jesus forgiving things. Blasphemy! Only God can do that. Good, thank, thank you Pharisees for pointing that out. That's clarifying. And here they say, what on earth is he doing? This Messiah, this one who's supposed to come and lead the nation, lead a new kingdom. And he's down in the muck and the mire with this lot. Tax collectors and sinners, he's eating with them. He's chatting with them. He's on a par with them. He's not cutting himself off and separating. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? When we go to see the queen... 
John, no, you didn't say you've been to see the Queen. Who's been to see the Queen? John, it was the other John. Jonathan Thomas told us once about a story of him going to a garden party with the Queen. Ingvar's now waving at me. I can't tell whether he's saying that he's been or if he's doing an impression. That's fine. Um, what do we do in those circumstances? Well, we try and smarten ourselves up as much as we can, don't we? We know that we're going to meet someone who is royalty. Or we decline the invite. We do one of the two things. We smarten ourselves up. Presumably have a haircut. Maybe a shave. Certainly wear the clothes and the attire that are appropriate for the event. We make ourselves decent in order to go and meet with that person. We wouldn't ever consider the fact that Lizzie and she'd be called Lizzie in this situation, would just put her slacks on, come in a um, rain mac, and just chill out with us, come along to Coffee Cake and Company and have some of Joe's from CC Mina's Welsh Cakes. We'd never imagine that, would we? Like, what would that say about her? What would that say about us if it happened? People, Daily Mail writers or... Journalists, that's the word for someone who puts in a newspaper. They'd be saying, what, what on earth is going on here? That she's eating and drinking and slurping her tea with scoundrels from Ammonford and T. Cross and Thunder Beer and Glan Amman? What's going on there? That doesn't make sense. Has she lost her mind? It's shocking that Jesus comes and he identifies with them to such a degree that he's willing to eat with them. He's come and he's proclaimed the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Believe. But sometimes words aren't clear enough, are they? Sometimes we hear a message and we can't quite believe that it's for us. Jesus draws near and he says, yes, I am here even for you. So these Pharisees who are happy and excited that Jesus has announced the coming of the kingdom, great that he's the Messiah, fantastic for whatever that means to them, that he's willing to welcome hard-working people, that he's going to kind of make people who are unclean, clean, and fit for society again. We're happy with that. They've been a little bit put off with this idea that he's the one who's allowed to forgive sins, but really, if that's part of the package, okay, we'll go along with it. But now, this is really, this is really a sticking point, a shocker and a blocker for them. That Jesus is the sort of king, Jesus is the sort of God, Jesus is the sort of Messiah who has come and is willing to welcome them. Them. We totally get the idea that he's willing to welcome us. The vast majority of us will think that. They're totally on board with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah who's come to welcome them. People who have smartened themselves up. People who have had a shave, who have done what is necessary to make themselves uh, into a state that is befitting a citizen in this new coming kingdom. They're totally on board with that. But they're aghast at the idea that that kingdom might include them, whoever they are. See how shocking that is? So you've got shocks all over the place. I, I guess this is my main point that I've taken 20 minutes to make. That what Jesus is doing is, is actually shocking. But there's stories we're familiar with and we just think, well, that's the way it is. That he'll come and look at a paralyzed man 
and offer forgiveness of sins? Something only God can do? That he'll come, he'll call Levi, Levi will follow him, and then he'll go and have dinner with people like Levi in Levi's house? It's shocking. But it all leads up to what I think is probably the most sensible, most obvious statement in the entire book, in all of Mark's gospel. Verse 17, Jesus, on hearing this, he says to them, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right, Jesus. Of course that's right. It's not someone with good teeth who needs a dentist. It's someone with bad teeth, isn't it? It's not someone who is fighting fit who needs to go to hospital, but someone who is struggling in their immune system or something like that. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Yeah, of course, you're right. Of course you're right. And then he puts it in the language of all the things that have been going on. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All of a sudden, it starts to make sense, doesn't it? All this shocking behavior, all this welcoming in and forgiving of people who aren't even asking for, for forgiveness, so it might seem. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. I have not call, come to call the righteous, but sinners. If, if the Pharisees had figured out how to make themselves right with God, if it was possible for you and I to make ourselves decent enough, fitting enough to go and have dinner with him, Jesus wouldn't have bothered coming. There would have been no need for Jesus to have appeared. The doctor does not make house calls to houses that are healthy and well. If they had figured out the secret recipe for being right with God, the extra boundaries and rules and regulations to make it so that they were fit, then Jesus would not have bothered coming at all. If you and I knew what it was or how we could achieve that perfection that is necessary to have a relationship with Jesus, even like those tax collectors and sinners enjoyed eating with him in Levi's house, Jesus wouldn't have been there. The Messiah wouldn't have needed to come. Only because there was this need for salvation do we see and experience the Saviour. And this teaches us something about what it is to be a Christian. This teaches us something about the salvation that we can and do enjoy. If it is something that depends on us, something that we do, then we need to be worried, don't we? Because we can undo things very easily. We say it now in weddings, I've referenced weddings, we say it, don't we, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. As in, you know, these people are married now, let's, let's hope, let's wish, let's keep our fingers crossed that it stays that way until, you know, the end. But we live in a society where divorce, remarriage, they're, they're, they're just common things. People here, presumably, who've gone through it once, twice, three times, I don't know. 
That, that, that's not really sort of something that bothers us. The idea of something being done, and then in human terms, we can undo it. We can go back on it. And if salvation is something which is done in, in human terms by us, achieved by us, and Jesus has only come to welcome the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the ones who have made themselves right, then what a terrifying life they have to live. Because maybe they've forgotten one of their rules. Or maybe they haven't quite built the boundaries far enough to keep themselves clean and right for God. Maybe on the way to the garden party in the queen's house, you've stepped in a puddle and now there's mud on your shoe and someone is going to stop you at the gate and say, you're not coming in, look like that. Maybe you did your tie-up nicely before you left the house, but in all the commotion and the seatbelts going on and the walking and the coming and going, your tie's gotten scruffy and loose and someone's going to say, not now, you're not coming in. Do you see that if it's down to us, making ourselves decent and tidy to get there and to enjoy it, then it's a terrifying existence because it means we can lose it like that at a drop of a hat, at a misthought or a misstep or a misdeed or a missed opportunity when we don't do the thing that we're supposed to do. It's terrifying. But I tell you what, Mark was right when he said at the start, this is, I've got good news to tell you about Jesus Christ the Messiah. I've got good news to tell you about the kingdom of God that has come near in him. I've got good news to tell you about the one who stands in front of us and says, I forgive your sins. I've got good news for you because Jesus is one who so sensibly looks at the situation and says, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. I have come, not for you who have sorted yourselves out, and know how to stay that way. But, but for people like Levi, who have absolutely thrown it all away, who have made a decision in their lives that they think they can never take back. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like you've done something that means there is no going back? That you can't, there's no point, sense in saying sorry because people aren't going to accept your apology. Do you feel like that? Levi must have felt like that day in, day out. The way that people looked at him. The way that those he was extorting money from looked at him. The way that he was passing a portion of that money on to looked at him. You worthless dog from both sides. Where's the way out? That's, that's something he's going to have to carry with him his whole life. Levi, the tax collector. And Jesus says to him, to all of his mates, whatever situation they're in, I've come for you. I've come to make you right. I have come to say to you, as I did to that man who was lowered through the roof, your sins are forgiven. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is good news for us. Because no matter how well we think of ourselves, we need that certainty, don't we? And no matter how lowly we may think of ourselves, my guess is, my assumption is that there are people on both ends of that spectrum in the room today. People who think that they're all right and they don't really need fixing up at all. And people who think that they are beyond repair and restoration. For both sets of people, Jesus says, I've come for you. I've come for you. And I think that means that we should be like the people in verse 12. 
who recognize Jesus as the one who has come to forgive sins, telling the truth. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. We've never heard anything like that. Hope for the hopeless. Assurance for the worriers and the anxious. Jesus brings it all. And we're going to take communion together now. And um, I was thinking about, well, how does this tie in with communion? So we know when we say it all the time, you know, the communion there are elements, they're symbols, they're a picture to us of what Jesus did, of his coming, of his living, of his dying for us, of his body being broken. You know, this idea that God took on flesh, associates with us, lives through the hardness of life, uh, lives a perfect life. But then his body is broken, his blood is shed in the, in the wine, the cup that we drink, that it's for us that we can have the forgiveness of sins, that we can have that right relationship with God. But how does that kind of relate to what we're looking at and we're seeing here? This idea that if Jesus has done it, then we have it, whether we think we deserve it or not. I thought this morning we could take communion, we could have this thought in our mind. That this morning it would be a chance to renew for some of us. This morning, it would be a chance to confess for some of us, maybe for the first time, that I need the medicine that the doctor has brought. That if you are a healthy person, okay, and by that I mean you are right with God, your sins are forgiven through Jesus, your chance this morning is to say, do you know what? That's only because I'm taking the medicine. I'm taking the medicine of trusting in, believing in, relying on, depending on Jesus. That I don't come, I don't sing the songs, I don't pray the prayers, I don't lift my hands, I don't enjoy God's favor in my life because of me, but because of Jesus. Because I've had a visit from the doctor. Take the medicine, renew that, say, I still need it, I still need it, I still need it. And perhaps maybe you've come this morning and you, well, you've, you've, you are on one of two ends of the spectrum. You're an incredibly sick person, spiritually speaking now. You're a tax collector. You've done things. You, you can't ever imagine that Jesus would be happy with you. Other places in Scripture we read about God delighting in us as his children. Oh, that could never be me. Well, let me tell you. It, it is very simple. Trust in Jesus. He's come to forgive sins. He's come to rub shoulders with the worst of the worst. Take the bread, take the wine, take the medicine. Not that they do anything, but they represent to us something this morning of laying claim to that by faith in Jesus. Or you're on the other end and you think, I don't really need this because I'm tidy, I'm decent. Like the queen would be all right to have me go and visit her, pay her a visit. It wouldn't take much for me to scrub up in those circumstances. Let, take this medicine, set yourself free from the worry and the anxiety that you have to maintain that. That you have some hand in keeping yourself fit and well. Jesus says, I have come to you. You are sick, whether you recognize it or not. No matter how sick you see yourself, I have come and I am giving you the medicine of my body and my blood. So take it as a chance to renew. Take it as a chance to confess. Ask yourself this question, where 
on the fork do you want to go? Jesus is a blasphemer who's just as bad as the rest of us because he eats with sinners and tax collectors. Or Jesus is God, made flesh, a doctor to heal the sick, a saviour come to save those who are sinners. I'm going to pray and then um, we'll distribute the elements and then we'll sing in response. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for these two shocking stories. We thank you even for the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord's responses that help us to see just how shocking they are. That a man would offer to forgive sins. That God would sit and dine with sinners. Help us to see ourselves in the right light, Lord God, as people who need your medicine as people who are sick in their souls as well as in our bodies. Lord, for those of us who have never come to the, the great doctor of the soul before, Lord, I pray that you would give them courage and confidence to come. Lord, that through these passages, through the rest of Mark's gospel, you'll be helping them to see, yes, truly, this one is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah come. I need to go to him for my medicine. I need to go to him for my wellness. Lord, this morning, give them the confidence not just to take the bread and the wine um, to feel like to fit it in or as part of a habit and a routine or as a ritual, but Lord God, because by faith they are laying claim to who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, help us this morning to renew in our hearts, to renew in our minds our total and utter dependence on Jesus. To look at him as not just someone who has come for the best of the best or the worst of the worst. As if they are categories that do not include us. Help us to see that Jesus is the one who has come for each and every one of us. We continue in our faith. We exist in his kingdom as his citizens. Totally and utterly because of him. To so be with us now as we eat the bread. As we uh, drink the wine. Help us by faith to see and to lay claim to Jesus, we ask. In your great and glorious name. Amen. We hope that you found today's message useful and challenging. And we want to take a moment to offer you some next steps that you can take right now. Why not get in touch with us via email at contact at amfordchurch.com if you have any follow-up questions or things that you'd like to discuss. If you want to know more about what's going on at Amford Church, make sure to like us on Facebook. And lastly, check out our YouTube channel for video teaching in addition to our sermon podcasts. Thanks for listening.